So welcome again to RUF. My name is Brent. I'm the campus minister here if I haven't met you. Um, this semester we're going through uh, the last book of the Bible. And it's a book called Revelation. It's the Revelation, which means what it sounds, that something is being revealed. And uh, what we've seen so far through the first three chapters are this, that uh, Jesus has visited uh, the Apostle John. He has been exiled to this island called Patmos. And Jesus visits John and, and gives him a vision of the way things are, the way things actually are in the world. And the reason that matters for John and the people to whom he's writing is that uh, the, the people who would get this letter were undergoing immense and serious and very real persecution. The Roman emperors for, at that point, about 30 years had been wholesale persecuting and prosecuting Christians. Emperor Domitian, by the, the late 90s, was burning Christians and hanging them um, in his garden as they burned to, to serve as lights by night. Um, things were not good for the church. And so the Apostle John is writing this letter to them to tell them to hold on, keep the faith. It's going to be okay. Jesus wins. The first uh, two weeks, last week and the one before that, it's been pretty straightforward. But as I mentioned, there is a lot of imagery in this book. And tonight it gets pretty thick. Now, um, the reason that some of this is going to be unfamiliar is because... Uh, I'm not, this isn't like criticism of you, it's just we don't know the Old Testament that well, and a lot of this imagery is from the Old Testament. And so I'm not going to be able to explain everything, but we're going to try to drill down a few of these areas to help us see what's going on. Uh, and I hope that becomes more clear as we go. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, jump in. Father, thank you for this time, and thanks for your word. And I pray that you would meet with us now and um, give us uh, understanding. Uh, make things clear so that we can see what it is you want us to see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we read the passage, let me set it up for us by just a minute. Uh, for just a minute. Uh, in the last few weeks, I actually developed a pair of glasses. It's a, set, it's a set of digital eyeglasses. Now, the thing about these digital eyeglasses uh, and the amazing thing about them is that when you put them on, they automatically scan your eyes and they adjust the prescription to exactly what you need. Okay? They're amazing. The problem with these eyeglasses is that once you put them on, um, they can't be neutral. They can be anything but neutral. And so, for those of you who wear glasses and contacts, these eyeglasses are going to be amazing. Because as your eyes change through the years, they're going to automatically adjust them. But for those of you who have great eyesight, you're going to hate these eyeglasses. And I've got bad news. I've got good and bad news for you. Uh, last night, I talked to uh, President Trump. And tomorrow, he's actually signing an executive order, his 900th of the week. And he is going to tell you that you must wear these glasses. He's buying... 200 million of them from me. Holla at your boy, I'm out. Um, retiring. But uh, you've got to wear them. That's ridiculous. But here's the thing. When I tell you that, aside from what you think about President Trump and the executive order, when I tell you that you have to wear those glasses, those of you in here who need glasses, who wear contacts, you're going to be excited. That's a cool thing. For those of you who don't, it's going to stink. 
It's not going to be good because they're going to distort reality. For some of you, they will make reality clearer. For others of you, they will distort reality. In Revelation 4 and 5 that we're about to see, uh, we're given glasses. We're given glasses to see things uh, as they are. Now, the problem is that um, we all come to this passage and we come to the table. We come to every day of our life, because we're humans, with a set of glasses already on. And that set of glasses is the culmination of your life experiences. It's, your, it's the knowledge that you have. It's the relationships that you have. It's all of these things that come together to formulate a set of glasses through which you see the world. This is, not surprisingly, called a worldview. We all have a worldview. It's not, do you have a set of glasses? You do. It's not, do I have a worldview? I do. The question is, are the glasses that you're presently wearing giving you an accurate picture of the world, or are you seeing the world through a distorted view of reality? So as I mentioned, John comes to us in these two chapters, and he gives us a set of glasses. And here's what these glasses are trying to get you to see. That there is more to the world than you can presently see with your current glasses. There is more to the world. Specifically, heaven is a real thing. And it's not something up there that's like in another uh, like atmosphere. Heaven is a present reality in the world right now. It exists right now in our midst. And John gets a vision into that reality, into that heaven. Let's read about it. Revelation 4 and 5. A little bit longer reading tonight, but I wanted to read the whole thing. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelian, Uh, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and without, 
sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one who was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, and each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's Word. So we've got these glasses on. And it's looking a little blurry, right? Looking a little blurry. Lots of, lots of things going on in there. Let's figure out what's happening. Four images that we're going to see tonight. Four things we're going to see in this passage, which hopefully bring some clarity as we move through this. The first one that we're going to see is the throne is the throne. Uh, Right away, right away in this passage, John is given a vision of a throne. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about this throne because this image is the image that dominates the rest of the book of Revelation. If we don't understand what's happening on the throne, we will not understand what's happening throughout the rest of this book. So there's a throne. What do we know about this throne? What's happening here? There's music playing somewhere. Sorry. Hey, I need a beat. There we go. Um, God, we got to start over. Just kidding. Um, so what's happening on the throne? Um, the throne, This is a, when this was written, it was a time of kings and kingdoms, right? We've already talked about the emperor. And so when John says the word throne, uh, the reader's minds are immediately imagining the seat of power. The control center. This is where decisions are made. This is the place where power resides. And in this vision, John sees a throne. So what do we know about that throne? Two main things with a few things within there. First, the throne is occupied. Look at verse 2 right there in chapter 4. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So what? So what does it matter that John tells these churches in Asia Minor in the first century that there is a throne in heaven and that there is, it is occupied, there's someone sitting there? What, what does that matter? It meant everything to them. 
This is why. The people who got this letter, as I mentioned already, these were people who were being killed because they were professing faith in Jesus. They were calling themselves Christians and they would be fed to the lions as a result. Their family members were being torn apart. Everything in their world was in upheaval because they were saying Jesus is Lord instead of saying Caesar is Lord. And so when Jesus looks at them and says, look, I can see into heaven and I'm telling you that there is someone sitting on that throne, friends, that would have been of imminent comfort to them. It would have been massively important because their lives felt chaotic. Nothing was making sense. They, they had followed Jesus and, and with some hope of, of a better future, of a better tomorrow. And here was their tomorrow, and it was not going well. And so there they are, struggling, hurting. And John says, I see the throne, and there was someone sitting on it. To them, most days it felt empty, like the world was happening at random. But he says, no, there's one seated on the throne. What does it say about him? Right there, look down. Verse 3, it says that he's lovely. He has the appearance like these magnificent gems. He's beautiful. He's something to behold. He's, he's kingly. He's transcendent in his appearance. He's beautiful. We also see that he's called Almighty, verses 8 and 9. And he said, he, the people around him, uh, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. He is pure. He is radiant. He is mighty. That word for almighty means all might. All power is his. Verse 11, he's identified as the creator, that he has made everything. Unless we miss it, notice that he is sitting down. And that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Because when a king is sitting down, that means that he is no longer at war. That the battle is ended. A sitting king is a conquering king. His, his kingdom is not up for debate. If a king is walking around or pacing or out in the battlefield, there is a battle to be had. But if he is sitting down, that means the war has been fought. Victory is won. It is his. The king sitting on this throne is sitting down. What does that matter? Some of you in here, um, whether today, whether yesterday, or whether tomorrow, your life feels chaotic. And it feels random. And there are things happening to you or to people in your life, people around you, certainly just the world at, la at large, that you look and it's just like, man, what is happening? Right? There's, this, there's terrible atrocities. People are getting beheaded. Villages are getting burned down. Babies are being, uh, unspeakable things are being done. They're like, what is going on? And then we see also alongside that amazing things happening. We see people giving up their careers and going to Africa and dr drilling wells and raising money to go do that for the sake of others. We see technology doing some amazing things and biomedical engineering. All I mean, there's incredible things happening right next to these terrible atrocities. And, and look, from, the, from this vantage point, without these glasses on, from our natural glasses, it looks like everything is just at random. There's good and bad, yin and yang, all... And John says, look, I'm seeing into heaven, and there's a king sitting on the throne. 
It's not random. He knows what he's doing. The second thing we see is that the throne is surrounded. And the rest of chapter 4 is taken up to describe all that surrounds the throne. I'm going to talk about a few of those things. The first thing is that it says there's 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Verse 4, and around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Why 24? Because Jack Bauer, right? Uh, Why 24? What does that mean? Well, um, there's a couple of different possible explanations for this. Scholars are a little bit mixed on it. Um, One of them is that um, at that time, the Roman emperor, Domitian, himself had 24 bodyguards that surrounded him at all times. Whether he was in his throne room, whether he was out at the Olympic Games, wherever he was, he had a cohort of 24 bodyguards. Right, so it was, a, it was evidence of like in the middle of these 24 is the one who is on, on the throne who's in power. So that's one explanation, and maybe that would have made sense to some of the people reading this letter. Most scholars actually think what this is, is that you have 12 and 12. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, the number 12 shows up in some really important ways. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. This represented the full people of God. So 12 was kind of a number of wholeness or completion. So 12 people of God in the Old Testament represents the church before Jesus. And then you have this second block of 12 people, which is the 12 apostles, Jesus' personal disciples who knew him and followed him, many of whom wrote letters in the New Testament. So you have the picture of the 12 uh, people of God or the whole people of God before Jesus came and the whole people of God after Jesus came. Friends, what we have in this is a representation of all of God's people sitting before him enthroned. What is it about them? Look, what are they wearing? They're wearing white. White garments. Revelation 5 that we just read goes on to say that that these elders have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That they are wearing white because their sin has been forgiven. And they're also on thrones, which is a really interesting thing. But not really, because in the Old Testament, right from the very beginning of creation, God said that he made mankind to be his image, which is like a vice regent, like a vice God, right? Second layers below God, certainly. We're the, create, we're the creature. He's the creator. But we were meant to rule over this world. And John gets a vision of heaven and says, it's going to happen. One day, someday, you will rule over this world. What else do we see around the throne? We see a crystal sea. It's a really interesting picture. In the rest of the book of Revelation, uh, the sea represents everything that opposes God. Everything that opposes the will of God. We'll see it in the coming weeks. The sea is, um, is seen, um, it tries to overcome and to undo and to destroy God's work in the world. A lot of um, people think that during that time, or certainly there were, um, competing myths about the creation story. And in most of these myths, whether Babylonian or uh, Mesopotamian or other kind of geographical uh, myths about the creation story, there would be this picture of the sea. And the sea represented chaos and unknown and, and the void. And even in the Bible, out of the beginning, there was a sea. 
And so people at this time think that the sea is everything that is wrong with the world and that we're just, they were just kind of waiting around for the sea to suck the world of order back into it and leave it chaotic again. And yet what do we see before this throne? A sea that was like crystal. No waves in this sea. There's no choppiness. It is flat and smooth. What's the picture we're getting? That God is in control of the sea. What does that mean and what does it not mean? It means this, that God knows about the chaos in the world. That God knows about it. The sea is still there. It hasn't gone away yet. It's going to go away. Revelation chapter 21, there will be no more sea, no more darkness, no more tears, no more sadness. But right now there is still a sea. Okay, remember how I said that John is giving us glasses to see heaven in our present world. Heaven is not just a future thing, it's a present reality. And so right now in this world, the sea is a real thing, and the throne is right in front of the sea. God is with us in the chaos, is what it's saying. God is with us right in the middle of all the chaos. What else do we see about that sea? We see, and I think more importantly, that from the heavenly perspective, this chaos has been tamed by God. Now, this is a difficult concept, okay? But what this means is that God is sovereign over the evil of the world. He is allowing it to stay put for now. He has not removed evil from the world in totality. We know that. Terrible things happen. Within us, we do terrible things and we see terrible things. But God is sovereign. He is ruling and reigning. He's sitting down on the throne. And the sea is as crystal from that vantage point. What does that matter for us? Well, it would have been very easy for John's readers and for us to assume, as I mentioned, the world is unfolding at random. But when they see this king sitting on his throne and when they see that calm sea before them, there would have been a sense with them, and I would ask you, how about you? There would have been a sense that, that I can make it, that I can hold on because this world isn't random. Now, I don't know what each one of you holds to you kind of as your worldview, what you bring to the table in terms of your assumptions and, and beliefs about the world, but there are real questions that you have to wrestle with. What do you do with the evil of the world? How do you make sense of it? Is it just random? Is everything about this world just random happenstance? So you've got to think about the evil, but also think about your dreams. Do, what do you hope to do? Is there really any lasting impact to your life? Or is you just here for 60 or 80 years or whatever, and then you die and, and nothing matters? Does this world have ultimate meaning to it? Is there a throne? Is there someone in control? And John gives us these Revelation 4 glasses and says, yeah, there is someone in control. He's sitting down. The war is finished. And right now we're just waiting for its fullness to come. We're waiting for the kingdom to come all the way. The universe, the throne of the universe is occupied. It's not up for grabs. Y'all, some of you hate Donald Trump. Some of you love Donald Trump. Some of you are terrified about the leaders around the world. Some of you are very indifferent to that. But Revelation 4 is meant to tell you 
that you can take a breath and you can pause and relax because God is on the throne. And it is not up for grabs. So we see a throne in heaven. What else do we see? We see a scroll. We see a scroll. The second of these main images um, we see in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. It's a scroll. It's a scroll. What is a scroll? I think in 50 or 60 years, people will be digging through our our crap and, and they'll find CD players and DVD players. and They'll be like, what is this thing? What do you do with this? And they'll be, uh, find our CDs and think they're Frisbees. And, and so, so we don't really know what scrolls are because that's not part of our world anymore. What's a scroll to them? It's a book. This was a book. And what is about this book? What's on this book? A few things right there. It's full of information. Look, it says it's written within and on the back. Um, Daryl Johnson, who's a, a commentator who writes uh, a great commentary on the book of Revelation and who I take a lot of information from, uh, he says that the scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. The scroll contains God's plan for rectifying what is wrong and for establishing his gracious rule in the world. Here it is. The scroll contains the meaning of history. The meaning of world history, of your history, of my history. The scroll contains the everything about the world. That's all. Just everything. It's full within and on the back. It's got writing all over it. And the travesty about this, there's no one who can open it. What else do we see about that scroll? It belongs to to the one who's seated on the throne. It belongs to God. What does that mean? It means that history is God's story. History, again, is not unfolding at random. It's not just this, uh, this karma thing or this reincarnation thing. It's not circular. It doesn't just come back around. History is an unfolding narrative. It's an unfolding story. It's God's story. He's sitting on the throne holding it. But as I already jumped to, we see the third thing is that no one is found who is worthy to open it. It's unopenable. No one. And friends, when John sees this vision, and when he sees there's no one to open it, he starts weeping. Think about this. In our world, think of all that we can do. We can build amazing bridges and skyscrapers. We can, do, uh, we can create robots that go to outer space and drop off satellites and come back. We've created self-driving cars. We can create amazing art, write beautiful poetry, uh, produce amazing, captivating movies. We can do all kinds of things. We can think about having babies and then do the thing that makes a baby and then have children. That's incredible. We can do so many things. And John looks and says, there is no one who can open the scroll. No one. That means... But unless God does something, history is useless. 
This world is random. It's chaotic. It's circular. There is no point to it. And for John, as I mentioned, that's just the worst thing in the world. Because that means that that we're left with all the questions unanswered. Will my depression ever end? Will the pain ever go away? Will I ever have friends? Will I ever be asked out? Will I ever be married? Will I ever be punished for the things I've done? Will he ever be punished for the things he did to me? Will justice ever finally be served? Can anyone open the scroll? And John says, no one. And that's the worst news in the world. And it was heavy to John, and he's weeping and weeping. Is there meaning in all of this? No one can open it. And then right there into that darkness in the silence of our longings, we hear the voice of one of the elders. Verse 5, chapter 5 says this, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John's attention is drawn to the one who is powerful and worthy to open the scrolls. Yes, he's saying, finally, someone who can open the scroll, and it's a lion. And he's powerful, and he's able, and he can do it. The the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of of David, it's this messianic fulfillment from the Old Testament. John is saying, yes! Verse 6, he turns around between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Oh no, John thought. He told me it was a lion. He told me it was powerful and able to open the scrolls. And I see a lamb that's bloody. The word there, it means little lamb. It is weak. One scholar says this, that the the place in the system reserved for the lion has been filled by the Lamb of God. What do we see about this lamb? See, it's got seven horns and seven eyes. What in the world? Eyes are the picture of wisdom in the Bible. Again, the Bible is full of imagery. Eyes are the image for wisdom. Seven is a number for completion. In seven days, God made the earth. In seven years, things came to fulfillment. Seven is 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 a number of fulfillment. This lamb has complete wisdom. It's all knowing. The lamb also has seven horns. What's a horn? A horn is a sign of power. It's a victory horn. It's a sign of dominion. This little lamb has ultimate power. It's almighty. Ultimate dominion. What else do we see? We see a lamb as if slain. What John sees in this throne room is that the one who is able to unfold and unlock history does so by being slaughtered, by dying. The lamb overcomes by sacrificing himself. Look, y'all, the secret of history, which no one was able to uncover on their own, which no one was able to go and open the scroll for, is that the lion gets to the throne 
by being a lamb. The lion wins by being slaughtered. Here's what this means. Do not miss this. The glasses that John is giving us in Revelation 5 are telling us that the power that overcomes is the weakness of sacrificial love. The power that overcomes everything that's wrong in the world is through sacrificial love. Bruce Metzger says this, Instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. This means five things for us. I'm going to go through these quick. You don't have to write them all down. I'll send them to you later if you want. Five things. With Revelation 5, chapter 5, glasses on, we realize that at the center of reality is one who has suffered. At the center of reality is one who has suffered. That means that the throne room of heaven understands suffering. Indeed, it feels suffering because there is a slain lamb on that throne. Second thing, with Revelation 5 glasses on, we realize that the center of reality is grace, costly grace. Why did the lion become a lamb? Why did it take the path of weakness, of sacrifice for the sake of us sheep? Because we needed to be redeemed. Somebody had to die for our sin. The lion takes the form of weakness and says, I'll do it. I'll be slaughtered for you. It's grace. You can't earn that. You just receive it. Thirdly, with Revelation 5 glasses on, we realize that we work from the victory, not for the victory. The victory has been won. Jesus has died on the cross. He has been risen from the dead. Friends, it's not an if, it's a when. Everything is going to be okay. Right now we're still living between the point of His resurrection and when He comes again. And the kingdom is set up in its fullness. But right now it's not, we're, not, we're not nervous. Right? We don't walk around thinking, oh my gosh, is, is this going to work out for me? Revelation is saying it works out for you. If you're in Christ, the victory's won. We're in the parade blowing the trumpet saying, Jesus won. You want to know what evangelism is? It's going around announcing Jesus won. The thing in your life that sucks the most won't always be that way. Jesus died to give you a better future and to take care of your present. Jesus wins. We're not working for victory. We're not waiting for victory. Fourthly, with Revelation 5 glasses on, we realize that the way to the fullness of life is the way of the Lamb. The lion gets to the throne by becoming a lamb and being slaughtered. This is what this means. That the cross is not only the grounds of our salvation, it's the path for us in salvation. If you say that you're a Christian, if you say, oh, I follow Jesus, He calls you to take up your cross and to suffer for Him. We don't go looking for suffering, but if you follow Jesus in this world, you will suffer. I, I, I don't want to just be so grim about that. I want all of you to follow Jesus. But you have to know if you do, you will suffer. You will be made fun of. You will spend money on things that people think is ridiculous. You'll make choices that seem really foolish because you love Jesus and you know that He loves you. Last thing right there. Revelation 5 glasses on. We realize where history is going. History is heading to the feet of the Lamb. This apparently weak act 
of an apparently foolish human broke the back of evil. And that means that there's a new day coming. And what we see in this vision is we see people surrounding Him, thrones upon thrones, elders upon elders, myriad upon myriads of angels. The whole world indeed is at the throne of the Lamb. And we'll see it in its fullness at the end of Revelation. But right now we see that that Jesus is the true King. And friends, you need to find yourself on His side. Because... Reality is going to break through. One day, someday, the curtain is going to be pulled back in fullness and Jesus will be shown to be the right and ruling king in this world. And you will not want to be against him. He is all-powerful, he is almighty, and he is just. And he cannot overlook sin. And so here's your choices. You come into him. You say, Jesus, I need that blood of the lamb on me so that my sin can be forgiven, so I can be on your team. Or you retain your own sin and He calls for your blood. Jesus is not some angelic being who just lives and to kind of make you feel good. God is not, He is not um, unjust. He has to punish sin. He said He was going to. But He's inviting me in right now and saying, Come, be forgiven, receive the blood of the Lamb. Have it put on you so that I don't have to. The last thing we see, and this is really short, is the song. It's the song. You ever wonder why Christians sing? You ever wondered that? Revelation 4 and 5 right here make it very clear. That when you're in front of the throne, when you see things as they really are, when you see the Lamb who was slain so that you can be forgiven, the only right response to that is to worship. Is to worship, is to join the song. And if you look throughout Revelation 4 and 5, it's just, they just burst out into singing all over the place. They love God because He's loving. They worship Him because He's worthy. They have the glasses. They see Him directly. And when they see Him, they can't stop singing again and again. Just over and over singing. So my question to you as we close is this. Does your heart sing for the one on the throne? When you hear of Jesus, when you think of God, is there any part of you which says, I need Him? I rejoice in what He's done for me. Let me pray for us as the musicians come up.